Welcome, everyone, to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. This is episode number 50, and it is during March Madness. Thankful that we are here during March Madness, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline, our NCAA Chief Medical Officer, and Mike Rodriguez, who's in charge of security, Chief Security Officer at the USTA and the US Open. Uh, Mike, I actually want to start with you because Brian and I have talked many times about the success rate of the US Open uh, and how March Madness, both men and women, we're going to be much more of a, and, and this may sound like an NCAA word, but a controlled environment versus a true bubble. The NBA had a true bubble because the NBA could literally had a gate before you get in to Disney. Uh, we can't do that in a city. Uh, you can't do that in New York. Um, so I actually want you, if you can, please just sort of lay out what you guys were able to accomplish. And then Brian, if you can chime in about how that was sort of a bit of a blueprint uh, for what we're experiencing with March Madness. Sure. Um, so listen, as you say, it is very much like a controlled environment and that's why it is very synonymous with what the NCAA is doing. And so, you know, we were at a point where it was the first major event, international event really, uh, during the pandemic to put on. So we really had to make sure of, of a lot of uh, processes that were in place, you know, going from the hotel, going to transport to the National Tennis Center, which is 42 acres. How do we control what's happening within the 42 acres at the National Tennis Center? So all of that had to really be laid out. And in addition to that, we had to deal with travel issues, right? So we had to work with the White House at the time to get 1,800 foreign nationals into the country that were not allowed to come in for tennis. So a lot of that was all part of the plan. And I would say that there's a very, an awful lot of synergy between what the NCAA is doing and what we had to do during the US Open. Brian? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the, the US Open was, was, was really a landmark event and, and uh, you know, they pulled it off and, and congratulations to, to the staff, Stacy Allister, the tournament director and Mike, I mean, um, it, it was amazing to see it happen and really brought tears to many. Uh, but when we were thinking about the, you know, the NCAA and, and having, you know, one championship for men and women in a controlled environment, the, the motto of the U.S. Open just made an awful lot of sense. And then Mike, with his experience, not just in tennis, but with professional sports, to have him come on as, as a consultant was also made a lot of sense. So, so the synergy is, is incredible. And, and what's, what's neat is, is that I was also part of the US Open too. And, and Mike and I have been working together, geez, for over 20 years. So, so we, we think a lot alike and, and, and our planning and sort of strategic thinking and our tactical thinking is very similar. So I wanna dive a little deeper, Mike, into what you guys did. Um, you know, I, I used to go or have gone many times to the New York Open. And that Marriott that's across there from Nassau Coliseum, I know it was one of the venues or one of the, the lodging um, where it's kind of isolated in this giant parking lot. You have a hotel and you can take them from there to the grounds. Um, how, was, how did that work to where you knew you couldn't house people at the, the event site? You had to at least secure them in a hotel, get them from point A to point B. And then once they're at the event site, you can, in a way, somewhat seal off that environment. Yeah, I, I think, Andy, it talks a lot about risk mitigation and where your issues are. So what we try to do is reduce the risk so that we could have this safe environment. So at the hotel, it was a matter of only 
tier one people being in that hotel. These are players and the support staff that work directly with them. And then how do we do this, right? So you're in your hotel room and with testing uh, supplied also in this hotel, you could not come out of your room without having a face mask or a credential on you, okay? And then what we also did at the hotel is we had RFID tracking in there. So if we had to do contact tracing, we could also know the movements of the people within the hotel that would help us as we worked on this with uh, you know the public health officials in New York. And great credit to them that they were working very much hand in glove with us to get this plan done. And then what we did is within the hotel, you know, we did the same thing that, again, that Brian will talk about with the NCAA. We have food deliveries that are coming. They drop them outside. We had staff that were cleared that would then bring that up and drop it at their door. We had the testing going on in there. If they were leaving to go to the venue, to the tennis center, they had to go out a certain door. We had an indoor and an outdoor so that RFID could track them for contact tracing. And then once they filled out their health questionnaire and had their temperature taken, we scanned them through their credential to get on the bus. So then we also knew who was on each bus that would help us with contact tracing. So the players, I have to say, you know, and, and the folks in the NBA and the bubble will tell you the same thing. The players there were great in conforming and the tennis players were great in here. You know, once they knew what was at stake and the health of safety of everyone, they really conformed to wearing the credentials and following the protocols. And that's kind of how we kept the hotel safe. So Brian, let's translate to what's happening with the men and the women. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I've seen it on in Indianapolis, so I have not seen San Antonio, so I can't see what, what I visually saw in, in Indianapolis. You have the benefit of the skyways that connect, you know, these multiple hotels to the convention center for the practice site, whereas the U.S. Open, you had to physically transport the players to the practice site. Um, you know, whether it was on shuttles or buses uh, or private vehicles. Um, what went into that thinking to make sure that to, to Mike's point of mitigating the risk going from hotel to practice site that we had this sort of secured environment? Yeah, so the key words, Andy, really are space management. You want to make certain that the tier one individuals, they're in a protected space and that you're managing that space at all times. But part of the management and the risk mitigation that Mike talked about, it began the week before the tournament. So players were tested consecutively on a daily basis for, for seven days. When they came by way of chartered flights or chartered buses, everyone had pre-assigned seats. These seats were approved by uh, Marion County or in the case of San Antonio by Bear County so that the, the, the transportation could not be a high contact risk event. In other words, you wouldn't have to contact trace the transportation because everyone has an appropriate face covering and everyone is distanced either on the, 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 the charter jet or the charter bus. Then once we arrive here and, and you know the teams are all on just one, uh, uh, each team is on one floor, the travel party is much smaller, tier one is just 34 or less and, and it, under no circumstances is it more than that. And everyone knows in tier one where they can go. They know that whenever they're traveling outside of their room, they have a mask and they're physically distanced. And, and so we know how they can get to the practice courts. We know how they can get to the treatment areas. We know how they can get to the pre-approved and assigned um, seating areas that are, that are physically distanced appropriately. And so if you do all of that, if there's a positive, and there will be positive, we, we, we know that you, you can't just be airtight about this, that you can really do contact tracing in a magnificent manner because you know where everyone has been. 
And so the only time where someone doesn't have a mask and is not physically distanced, well, they're, and when they're alone in their room, of course, they're physically distanced because they're alone. Um, and then when they're uh, in the eating area, but they're physically distanced in a place that, that the county uh, health officials have approved, or when they're practicing or competing on the court, and even on the court during competition, and, and hopefully what we're going to see is that on the bench, everyone has a mask, they're physically distanced on the bench. And the only people without a mask are those that are actively competing on the floor and they'll all have tracking devices. So we'll be able to monitor their movements, monitor the close contacts, and we can do that during, during uh, practice as well. Um, I will say there are gonna be, you know, because people can say, well, geez, they're, you know, those teams that are there for three and a half weeks, how are they gonna survive? We also have ways where we're bringing people into a different kind of controlled environment. So we'll be able to bring them, for example, to the, uh, the minor league baseball stadium, which is less than a block away from the controlled environment and have them outside, fresh air, physically distanced there. And, and or, or we may be bringing them to a, a golf course that is gonna be secured, but the way they get there is, is by a bus where everyone has assigned seats, there's physically distanced. So it really is space management at every single point in time. So I was going to get there. Glad you jumped in that. Because, Mike, I think that is critical for mental health and for health. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that because that was definitely a concern and a big difference between what these basketball players were going through versus what tennis players were in that with basketball players, as they were going to practice, they're practicing inside. And I know there was a lot of debate about getting outside time. And coaches like to just relieve stress of walking and getting outside. And so from a tennis perspective, because everything they were doing once they left the controlled environment was outside, how much do you think that helped sort of relieve some of the mental health aspect of relief, you know, once they got onto the grounds, whether it was practice or even just standing there and enjoying the sun or the air, that that helped them even when they had to go back into their controlled space? Yeah, I will tell you that, you know, and, and what Brian touched on, this mental health really became an issue. And probably during the open, we didn't know how important it was at the time. And really, the doctors pointed us in that direction after it. But at the hotel outside, and you know the location, right? In the back, we built an outdoor kind of area for the players to go out and sit down and lounge and watch movies outside and have refreshments and food and the whole thing. And that was open till like 10 o'clock at night. And then when we go back to the tennis center, what we were able to do is take all of the top players and we, we gave them a suite for themselves because we didn't have, you know, anyone that fans that were in the site. So they were able to sit in the suite, do their conditioning, get worked on by physical therapists, have that social distancing and get to watch other competitors. So they were happy about that. The other thing that we found out, which is really kind of cool in a sense, they were able to, for the first time, actually walk the grounds of the National Tennis Center. Remember, they, they can't go anywhere with the fans out there. They're going from point A to point B. And when you have tennis players that actually walk down in the South Plaza, the Court of Champions, and never saw these plaques before the great tennis players, I mean, they were just blown away. So, yeah, that was an important part. So, obviously, the adjustment for us this year is like, how are we going to come and take back some of that space from players as we go into the U.S. Open this year? So, Brian, to that point, um, when did it evolve to where you said, you know what, from a mental health aspect, we got to give them some air, some space uh, outside of their room, outside of the Skyway, outside of the convention center, outside of the arena. Right. So we talked about that, Andy, with the NCAA COVID-19 uh, medical advisory group and, and numerous team physicians and athletic trainers. Um, you know, they were concerned about it. And, and so 
everyone's been talking about it for months. And then of course, with the, with the NCAA, we've had so many collaborative leadership uh, summits on mental health. So it's always been, you know, at the forefront of our thinking, but you know, when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, and we were focused so much on risk mitigation of COVID-19 and you, you, you were talking about the space. And then we said, this is just not going to be manageable. I mean, yeah, you can try to focus on mental health and meditate in your hotel room, but we need to just feel a sense of space. So that really has what became more front and center during the past one to two months. Um, and and it's, you know, it's just turned out that, that we actually have some real opportunities uh, uh, to, to, to provide that to, to everyone. So, you know, it, it all in all, it's working out well. And, you know, but in addition, you, you know, we're working with Indiana University Health. They are providing the testing, but, but we have some physician oversight. And there's always going to be a licensed mental health provider on call should someone have other sorts of mental health symptoms or disorders that need to be addressed um, more immediately. So, so we really have covered multiple areas of, of trying to assure mental health. And, you know, when you think about competition, you know, what does it take to, to really compete? You, you want to be in an optimal state of physiological readiness. And that's just not physical. That's emotional and mental and, and even spiritual, your sense of meaning and feeling good about yourself. So, so more and more, we've incorporated that. And, and, and hopefully that's going to really work out well. So one other aspect that I just want to get your quick opinions on is um, practice. Uh, and this really would apply for tennis as well as it would for basketball in normal times. Uh, what happens in these postseason tournaments is you have an assigned practice time, usually in front of fans, and then Coach A will say, you know what, we're going to go over to this high school, do our own thing for two hours and get ready. Uh, and I'm sure with the U.S. Open, same kind of thing, like, okay, I've got my slot, whoever I am, Nadal, Djokovic, doesn't matter, 1 to 2.30, but you know what, a couple hours later, I want to just get out there and hit more. Well, wait a minute, we, got, we, you know, we, we can't just be having everyone move around. So from your aspect, Mike, and then Brian, how you, you know, how that, how coaches had to sort of deal with this that like, no, you can't do that. How, how did you handle that, Mike? And how are you handling that, Brian? Uh, well, you know, Brian, Brian knows, I mean, this, you know, it, this comes out of like, you know, kind of the way I think, and maybe my law enforcement background, but you know, the only way we knew we were going to succeed is with a zero tolerance mentality. We had to get everyone to believe that this was very serious. You know, some people think that they're immune to the virus. The virus doesn't care who it attacks. So I will tell you, as Brian mentioned, you know, the staff that we had to work here with, everybody was on board. And I will tell you, my concern was, and, and you know, Andy, tennis players, my concern was that they were gonna walk in and not have a mask on, and I was gonna stand at the door. You're not coming in without a mask. And I have to tell you that they all got on board and they all, they all wore their mask and they really were behind the health and safety standards that we set. And they were a part of the reason that we did have the success. So to your point, you know, we had to control movements. They were in line. I mean, we pretty much took care of them. They had some little freedom on site that they wouldn't have had before, but they really helped us with the success of the health and safety standards. Brian? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you get in the minds of the athletes and, and you speak to them, I mean, this is a celebration of, of everything they've been working for to be able to compete with the top 68 teams for the men, top 68, 64 teams for the women. And they understand they've seen teams that, you know, have been knocked out because of COVID. They understand the seriousness of it and the coaches really get it. And so everyone has been working together and saying, yeah, we're, we're going to do this because we want to make it right. And most importantly for the athletes, 
We just want to get out there and compete. And they know that the only way they're going to be able to do that is, as Mike said, with, you know, zero risk tolerance. And, and so people are buying in. And, and I think that's what's going to really lead to the success of the tournament. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I definitely had conversations with coaches. This season. I said, just so you understand, your practice time is your practice time. You can't go like at six or eight o'clock and go find some high school and go practice. It's not happening. All right, one last topic, and that is fans. Uh, you didn't have them at the U.S. Open. We do have them at the men's and women's tournament. Uh, They're not supposed to interact with the Tier 1. So how is that being um, figured out, uh, Brian, uh, in terms of, you know, just to make sure the fans are, you know, on one side and never see physically face-to-face the Tier 1? Yeah, I think Mike can get into the granular details of this, but but we have four tiers where tier one are, are just the travel party of 34. And they really are separated from everyone. And the only people that might interact with tier one on occasion, if it's pre-approved, are the tier two individuals who are actually at court side. And, you know, the tier two individuals like tier one, they're being tested daily and they're kept in their own controlled environment. And if they have to interact with, with any of the tier one individuals, it's gonna be physically distanced and masked. Tier three are really separated from, they're, they're not interacting at all with tier one and there would be very little reason, if any, for them to interact with tier two and only if approved. And then there's gonna be a separation for the fans. And the fans is, the oversight of the fans is Marion County or Bear County in, in, in San Antonio. And it's going to be limited. You know, we, we, we set up to 25%. It's going to be less than that. And it's going to be interesting because the fans will be uh, in pods. So it's not going to just be large groupings together. They're going to be masked. And, and then there are going to be cutouts. So it'll look like on TV, there are more fans. I think the cutouts will be pretty cool too. But, but Mike knows the operational details of the separation better. Yeah, you know, Andy, what I would add is, and it's important to state this now, you know, there is a dedicated group of people in the NCAA that I'm working with, and, and these people are really leading on the operation side, and, and they've been tremendous, and, and, and I have to say what they've done is there's a separation of where Tier 1 and Tier 2 and Tier 3 people can go, and then not only are the staff implementing that and making sure it happens, but the credentialing has a color coding. So you know at a distance what colors should be in what areas. And we did the same at the U.S. Open. It really helps you identify from a far distance away who's coming into an area and to, and to actually execute the plan. And, and this really gets down to it. You can have the best plan in the world, but if you're not marrying that up into the implementation, you're not going to be successful. So I would just say, you know, what the operations people are doing with the NCAA is making sure that that plan, it matches the implementation. And one last thing, I just didn't, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. And I don't want to get into, you know, who tested positive, who didn't, but just in general. And Dan Gabbett, the senior vice president for the NCAA, has said this, uh, and, and I believe it, and I think this is what's going to happen, is that one positive test should not knock out a team. So I just want to reinforce that um, for, for Brian and Mike, if you can comment on just why that is the case, that if there is a positive, and when I say team I mean within tier one within that 34 could be a player coach could be the trainer uh you name it but within that tier one 34 why should one not knock out an entire team yeah so Andy we've done oh boy how many tabletops Mike but um just where you go over every single single scenario and and so what Mike just said which is really critical it's not about the plans it's the implementation 
And so if there's a positive, there's gonna be contact tracing and that's overseen by Marion County or Bear County. That's not overseen by the NCAA. And what they're going to look at, has the plan been implemented successfully, really perfectly? So if it has, then the only time that there has been a, a, a contact risk would be when people are on the court. And so we're actually getting real-time analysis of, of, of the tracking data. We also have video analysis when need be. And so everything is, is set up and the assumption is going to be that a team wouldn't have to be knocked out because the plan has been worked through so carefully. And, and not just with the, the medical advisor group and not just with Marion County, but with so many people, with the membership, with coaches, and, and as Mike said, with the NCAA staff. So um, it, it's pretty, it, pretty buttoned up and, and you know, again, if it's implemented well, I think the contact tracing is, is not going to be knocking out entire teams at any means. Mike, do you wanna have a closing comment on that? Uh, no, no, I mean, Brian said it. Look, I, I will just say this, this has been a long road. I mean, you know, Brian approached me over a year ago, March of 2020 to join his medical advisory group. And I was able to learn a lot and that really helped us at the US Open and working with him all this time. And so it's kind of been great to work with all these infectious disease doctors and physicians. And that really helps you as you're building the plan. And, and, and the thing that the NCAA, NCAA is going through right now is this issue, right? How do you make sure that you are putting on a historic event and you remain safe? And they've done a great job always in the years with operations and security. And now you're overlaying this health and safety plan. And it really makes it very complex. And, and that's really the uh, the job of them is to do that. And they've done a great job of putting that in place. And, and I think they will be very successful. Well, thank you to both of you and to your entire staffs to helping put on these two tournaments. Uh, we all want it to happen. We all know it's going to happen now. With these fingers crossed that things are going well. Uh, and the tournaments are going to start this weekend. Uh, appreciate both of you. Um, Brian Hainline, NCAA Chief Medical Officer. Mike Rodriguez, Chief Security Officer from the U.S. Open and USTA. This concludes episode 50 of our NCAA series. You can always go to ncaa.org slash social series where all 50 are archived. Yes, it's been a year since we've been starting this. All right, hopefully we'll talk next week. Stay safe, everyone.